Well, this pod might have started out as an extended, I don't think that word means what you think it means, but it suddenly turned into a brief history of the world. It's no wonder I never have any time. <laughs> And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Okay, today's pod is going to be a bit of a departure from our normal pods and will probably resemble more of a civics or history lesson. And before you check out thinking, oh my God, no, I don't want a history lesson, please know that I get that. But I believe it has to be done. Try and think back to that one teacher you liked when you were in school, and I will attempt to channel that person. I will make the solid effort to not bore your socks off while giving you the information I think you should have. And if you already know all of this, good on ya, because most of us don't, and you're way ahead of the game. Today we're going to talk about the history of government, the birth of politics, the world orders that led us to where we are now, and the definitions and backgrounds of many of the isms you hear all the time. Things like capitalism, fascism, socialism, communism, all words that are often used indiscriminately, often incorrectly, and mostly out of context. These are concepts and historical contexts that we should know, but we kind of don't. Most of us know innately when words or concepts are being used incorrectly, but most of us can't tell you exactly what's wrong with the usage, or if someone challenged you and said, oh yeah, then what is communism? We'd be like, <laughs> so I wanted to give you some background on how we got here, what came before us, and how these concepts and ideologies fit together. I'm going to give you some historical roots because we have a better chance of knowing where we want to go if we know where we've been. So, as Maria sang to those Von Trapp kids on the mountain in Vienna, let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. The government of a country is an organization that does many things. It defends the country from outside enemies, it keeps order within the country, and it provides services for the people. In return, the people of the country typically pay taxes to the government for doing its job, and they obey the rules or the laws that the government has set out for them to keep peace and uphold society. Every government has institutions and ways of setting things up to get things accomplished. America, like many other countries, has a constitution or a document that spells out the rules that will govern the country. Most modern countries also have some version of three branches of government, the leader, the group that creates the laws, and the group that upholds the laws. In America's case, our three branches of government are the executive, with the president, the cabinet, and the Department of Justice, the legislative, which is Congress, the House of Representatives, and the Senate, and the judicial branch, which includes the entire court system with the Supreme Court at the top. The states have a similar three-branch system. These three branches of government were set up by our founding fathers to have separate but equal power so that each branch could act as a check on the others. This structure of government was created in response to the newly independent founders having previously been ruled by a king whose unchecked power they believed was corrosive and not good for the people. The founding fathers wanted to be sure the power over our nation was never concentrated into too few hands. They felt that would lead to corruption. And this was a brilliant plan and something our modern American government is now currently struggling with. Before we back it up to government throughout the ages, let's be clear that America is a constitutional republic. Now, I've talked about this before. The big right-wing talking point when you say America is a democracy is to say, no, America is a republic. But that's not the sick burn people think it is. So let's go over it again. America is a republic. 
But more specifically, America is a constitutional republic, and a constitutional republic is a form of democracy. Republic comes from the Latin words res and publica, which means a public affair. It is a form of government in which the country is considered a public matter and not a private concern or property of the rulers. The primary positions of power in a republic are attained through a democracy, ruled by the people, a mix of democracy with oligarchy, ruled by the people along with ruled by a select few, or an autocracy, where the republic ends up being governed by one person with absolute power. Now, we could have a discussion about how much oligarchy is sneaking into American politics and public life, or how much the Republican Party seems to be leaning towards autocracy, but in the context of U.S. constitutional law, the definition of republic refers specifically to a form of government in which elected individuals represent the citizens and exercise their power according to the rule of law under the Constitution. So in other words, a democracy a government theoretically set up to represent the will of the people and not the will of the rulers. Sometimes I think we think government is set in stone, like it can't change because it's always been like this. But actually, government, the rule of nations and its people, is something that's been constantly evolving through the course of history. New forms of government are often created as a response to new ideas, new knowledge, and important human events. There is no on-high way to run a country— Government has never been anything other than a fallible, human-created work in progress. In the earliest types of government, people had little or no real freedom. There was a very distinct line between those who ruled and those who were ruled, with the possible exception of maybe indigenous people who tended to work more as a collective for the good of the whole. Early historical governments, or leadership, was mostly organized to benefit the most powerful. Most early rulers were monarchs, kings, queens, pharaohs. Some of them got their job through war, but most were born into the role. Examples of monarchy are found throughout history. Ancient Egypt was ruled by pharaohs as far back as 2600 BC, or BCE, before Common Era, as it's now called, all the way until Egypt became part of the Roman Empire in 30 BCE. In Egypt, and in other empires, including China, power stayed in one family from generation to generation, and those periods were known as dynasties. However, Sometime in the late 300s BCE, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle dreamed up another type of government. He thought that rulers should be people who were worthy of leading, instead of just people who had inherited their power or wanted in battle. Aristotle believed that a small group of the wisest people, those who were morally or intellectually superior, should govern a country. He called this type of government an aristocracy, the term coming from the Greek aristro and the Greek kratia, meaning rule of the best. Aristocracy was a form of government that would place power in the hands of a small, privileged ruling class called the aristocrats. And yes, that's where that word comes from, not from France or England, but from ancient Greece. However, as most of us can surmise from the examples of aristocracy throughout history, this form of leadership didn't always end up giving power to the most wise, morally or intellectually superior, but typically to the most wealthy, the most connected, or the most religious. But back in ancient Greece, as populations grew and people became dissatisfied with their rulers, another type of government was born. Democracy. The word democracy comes from the Greek word demos, meaning people, and kratia, which we already know means rule. So, rule by the people. At the time, some Greek towns were so small that the entire population would gather together to decide on issues of government. The people would talk about it, vote, and then decide. 
That is known as a direct democracy. That's similar to how you and your friends would decide if you were having pizza or tacos for dinner, by getting together, discussing it, and taking a vote. But in the larger Greek city-states, there were too many people to decide like that. So the people chose governing officials to represent them in affairs of government. These chosen officials would be the ones who would go and debate and vote. And this type of government is known as a representative democracy. And it's incredibly similar to the modern government we have today, where senators and congressmen and other leaders represent large groups of people from their home states and regions in government affairs. Now, representative democracy may seem like an aristocracy because only a few people manage the government. However, in a democracy, the people choose their leaders, and if they feel they're not being represented, they can choose new leaders. Think of monarchy as the rule of one, aristocracy as the rule of few, and democracy as the rule of many. Though, to be entirely transparent, the earliest forms of democracy in ancient Greece are very similar to the earliest forms of democracy in America, in that it was not entirely democratic. Only rich landowners could vote, and women and slaves were not considered citizens. Democracy was alive and well during the Greek and Roman empires, but so was autocracy, in the form of emperors who were unrestrained by laws and could use their absolute power indiscriminately. In ancient times, they called this form of rule tyranny. While a monarch is bound by rules, a tyrant is not. For the ancient Greeks, a tyrant wasn't necessarily a bad ruler, but over time, the word has become synonymous with cruel and oppressive rulers who use their unrestrained power for personal gain. Think of the gladiator fights in the Colosseum, that kind of thumbs up, thumbs down kind of stuff. So ancient Greek and Rome had kings, senators, dictators, and emperors. It was a real juxtaposition back in those days. But when the Roman Empire fell in the late 400s CE, which is Common Era, what used to be referred to as AD Anno Domino, the world entered into a period of time called the Middle Ages, which lasted for about a thousand years. Religion was hugely important in the Middle Ages. The Roman Catholic Church's power was almost above that of kings and queens, in some cases with the church even appointing the monarchs. The Islamic faith also became equally powerful in the Middle Ages, in the Middle East, and in Asia and in parts of Africa. And just so we're on the same page terminology-wise, any government with a religious leader at the top who makes the rules and decisions for society is considered a theocracy. For centuries, the whole concept of democracy was derided, understood to be a dangerous form of mob rule. The Middle Ages was a time of feudalism. Feudalism refers to both a way of life in which people lived in walled castles or lands with knights loyal to the ruler protecting them, and a system of rights and obligations the people owed to the ruler for those protections. With its combination of kings and knights, feudalism was a mixture of monarchy and aristocracy, and the rulers in the Middle Ages were not particularly concerned with the well-being of their subjects. So much so that in 1215, a group of landowners in England forced their ruler, King John, to sign a document promising them certain rights. This document was known as the Magna Carta, and it had a bunch of stipulations in it like putting a limit on what they could be taxed, allowing people to travel freely between lands, and establishing rules that protected the people from being unjustly imprisoned. Now, I'm mentioning the Magna Carta not because I'm going to have the time to mention everything that happened in history, but because the Magna Carta is considered to be the first modern example of a constitution or a document that spells out the rights of a country's citizens and the power the government has over those citizens. After the success of the Magna Carta, a body of government called Parliament was created in England. 
The monarch would still be in charge, but this group of people would oversee the creation of the nation's laws and deal with the day-to-day -day business of government. To paraphrase Benedict de Spinoza, one of the most important philosophers in the early modern period, monarchies are flawed political orders because they are unable to harness the power of the people. Out of a well-founded fear of being overthrown, monarchs end up oppressing their subjects. And then their subjects hate their ruler for oppressing them. They have no loyalty because they only obey out of fear. So even the most virtuous king ends up having trouble making wise and consistent decisions that everyone can respect and uphold. A monarchy can only improve itself by including a representative assembly of the people to which the king will listen and sometimes defer. This is what Parliament was created to approximate in the 1200s, and what de Spinoza was still pitching about 400 years later. De Spinoza, who was living in the 17th century Dutch Republic, was actually attempting to convince Europeans to return to the ancient Greek concept of democracy as a way to directly engage citizens' loyalty by politically involving them. He believed that having diverse voices in the decision-making would allow for better decisions, and while the monarchs weren't quite ready for that, by that time most of Europe was starting to adopt a mixed form of government known as a constitutional monarchy, where they still had kings and queens, but also some form of document that laid out rules for the citizens and monarchs. The monarchs started with ultimate control. But as they found themselves managing nations that were larger and larger, monarchs found it was helpful to share some of that power with groups that could help them govern. However, the biggest thing to rock Europe's way of doing things came after the discovery of the Americas. After 1492, the rulers of Europe started to send ship after ship to explore the new world and set up colonies that would serve to benefit them. But the homelands of places like England and Spain and France were too far away from the colonies to effectively rule them. So the colonies often needed to set up their own government to oversee trade and protect the people. Over time, the people in the colonies grew increasingly unhappy with the countries that were governing them because they didn't feel they were properly represented. Take America's previous colonial rulers, England. The English colonies were subject to English law, but the colonists had no representation in Parliament. The King of England repeatedly refused to grant more powers to the colonies to make decisions for themselves and continued to tax them without giving them a voice. Add in some religious fervor about being able to practice your own religion, and by the mid-1700s, protests and unrest among the colonists moved to calls for independence, which is what led to the American Revolution. Once independent, the colonies had to create an entirely new form of government. And according to historians, it took a lot longer than it appeared in Hamilton for our government to take shape. Almost a decade. But by 1789, the country had a constitution in place with the first three words, we the people, indicating that the government would be a democratic one. But just like in ancient Greece, thousands of years before, early American democracy did not mean that everyone was represented. Women and slaves were once again not allowed to vote, African-American men wouldn't get the vote until 1870 and were still often prevented from voting due to unfair and racist laws. Women didn't get the vote until 1920, and we didn't have laws to stop the most egregious voter suppression until the 1960s when the Supreme Court upheld the Voting Rights Act. Today, we find ourselves back down an anti-democratic rabbit hole with new voter suppression laws, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, and racial and partisan gerrymandering. Now, the American Revolution and War of Independence was followed by the French Revolution, as the French rose up against their own monarchs and aristocracy and called for greater rule of the people. 
After the monarchy was overthrown, the French people drafted their own Declaration of Independence, called the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which served as their constitution. History tells us that one of the biggest differences between the revolution in America and the revolution in France was the focus on freedom versus equality. America believed freedom was the most important quality of their new government. And while the new leaders in France believed in freedom, they also believed that the government should work to assure equality, liberty, equality, fraternity. As the effects of the French Revolution began to spread across Europe, this idea of freedom and equality and brotherhood changed the belief from citizens simply having equal rights under democracy to the idea that the amount of wealth and prosperity could potentially also be equal across society. This idea of equality, financial equality, equality of opportunity and class, was the central belief behind the birth of socialism and then communism, two new theories of society that emerged in the 1800s. Communism was born out of socialism, but you can't really understand socialism without understanding capitalism. So let's do it in that order. And because this is a political show based in America, we'll do it through the lens of the United States. So the U.S. is considered to be a capitalistic country. Capitalism is an economic system where private individuals own and control the businesses, property, and capital, or what economists refer to as the means of production. The amount of goods and services that are produced are based on a system of supply and demand in which businesses try to manufacture quality products as efficiently and inexpensively as possible to make a profit. In its purest form, capitalism is called free market or laissez-faire capitalism. Laissez-faire is a French term that basically means hands-off. This is the form of capitalism that Republicans favor because it's completely unrestrained. The companies decide what they'll invest in and produce, how they'll do it, and what they'll charge. This sounds fine, right? But true laissez-faire or free market capitalism would operate completely without government control. So no minimum wage, no unions, no OSHA requirements for safety of workers, no age requirements for workers, no break requirements. Conditions and hours could be whatever the company could get away with until employees refused to work there. And there would be absolutely no environmental or product standards for your company to adhere to. So, you know, go ahead and dump your toxic waste into the river and work your 13-year-old workers 21 hours a day to make a product that might kill people. Hey man, you do you. The government is hands-off on your ability to make bank. But most capitalist countries don't function like this, no matter what the libertarians would prefer, nor would we want them to. We have no desire to return to the workhouses of the 18th and 19th century, and most of us can agree childhood and slave labor are something we want to be avoiding. We're at the point now where most of us can see that our society is better with a certain amount of government protections for the workers and the people. Typically, however, capitalism should be free to retain private ownership, income should be determined by the market and not government decisions, and prices should be set by supply and demand and not the government. And although limited taxation does come into play as far as profit margins, I think we've all become increasingly aware that most successful American companies are not paying a whole lot of taxes. So while many Scandinavian and Western European countries are considered socialist democracies, the U.S. is generally still considered to be a capitalistic country first, with a mixture of social programs and government regulations peppered in. We know America is fundamentally a capitalist society because capitalistic systems make little to no effort to prevent income inequality. The capitalistic theory has always been that financial inequality encourages competition and innovation, which ultimately drives economic growth. Under capitalism, the government does not employ the general workforce, so in times of economic downturns, unemployment increases. 
So although America has social programs to help offset those losses and keep our society afloat to avoid, say, another Great Depression, the government does not promise you a job or an income. Under capitalism, individuals contribute to the economy based on the needs of the market, and we are rewarded based on how well the economy is doing and our own individual personal wealth. One of the things you want to look out for in a society set up like this is a plutocracy which is a country or society governed by the wealthy, an elite or ruling class of people whose power is derived by their wealth. With the Supreme Court decision to allow unlimited money in politics, we have started down a path where money equals power, and we see our government and our legal system increasingly swayed by those with the most money. It's a dangerous position for our country to be in, and we have to be careful if we don't want to become a plutocracy. A plutocracy is a form of oligarchy, an oligarchy, as I said in the beginning, is a form of government or power structure where the power rests with a small number of people. The main difference between an oligarchy and a plutocracy is that an oligarchy is a rule by a privileged minority, whereas plutocracy is ruled by a wealthy minority. So an oligarchy can be based on finances and wealth, like the Russian oligarchs we hear so much about, but it can also be based on nobility or fame or education or religion, anything where the power structure rests with a select few. But back to America and its capitalistic society with its social programs created to offset the worst elements of the free market. Now, how are social programs different than socialism? One of the biggest arguments Republicans use against Democrats is that they're socialists, Republicans have been using this idea of socialism as a boogeyman to scare the voters for a century. It was used in 1935 when President Roosevelt proposed the Social Security program that included Social Security and unemployment insurance. It was used in 1945 when President Truman first proposed a national health insurance program, which would later become Medicare. Historically, the Republicans have opposed almost every single social program Democrats have ever suggested by painting them as socialist. But we need to be clear that social programs and a social safety net to protect and help the people is light years away from actual socialism. Thomas Allen Schwartz, a Vanderbilt University history and political science professor, defines the term socialism as a political system in which the state is in charge of the economy and provides not only social services such as healthcare for its people, but also controls large sections of the private economy. Socialism is based on the idea that the creation of wealth should be controlled by the workers who create it. It calls for public ownership and control of property, natural resources, and the means of production. Socialism began as a reaction to capitalism, the system in which people and companies competed with each other for wealth. Capitalism had grown so strong in the 17 and 1800s during the Industrial Revolution when machines were invented and factories were built. The owners of the factory were getting richer and richer, but the workers were breaking their backs for very little money and they were often incredibly mistreated. To create a fairer society, some people thought it would be better if the government, not private individuals, controlled industry. The government could then use its economic power to create a comfortable life for everyone. This new system was called socialism. Socialists originally believed that the ownership of factories and other properties would just gradually pass from the few wealthy people to the workers. And according to the socialist view, individuals did not live or work independently, but in cooperation with one another. Therefore, the goal of socialism was to spread the wealth and to make things more equal. 
So although we have aspects of these ideas on the left of the American party structure, working together to make things more equal, government programs to help create fairness, in a true socialist society, everything that people produce belongs to the collective, and everyone who contributes to the production is entitled to share in it. So no matter what you hear about socialism in America, there is not now, nor has there ever been, a single registered Democrat who has proposed government-controlled private sector that shares the wealth of previously private companies amongst everyone. Socialism is, by nature, in opposition to capitalism. So unless we want to change the entire American way of life, manifest destiny, American exceptionalism, very few, if anyone, are pitching pure socialism in one of the most capitalistic societies in the world. Compassionate moral capitalism, maybe, but not socialism. Back in the 17 and 1800s, however, for a number of people who were pitching true socialism, this kind of gradual change from capitalism to socialism was way too slow. There were people that wanted to go further and faster and overthrow the capitalistic system completely. A German scholar named Karl Marx believed that workers would eventually create a socialist system known as communism. In a communist society, there would be no private property or government at all. People would produce and share goods and wealth based on their different needs and abilities. It's said that the modern communist ideology really began to develop during the French Revolution in the late 1780s in response to people's distaste for being run by an elite class and a dream of living in a classless society. German philosopher and economist Karl Marx, along with Friedrich Engels, would later expand on those ideas and publish the Communist Manifesto almost 70 years later in 1848. Communism, a word that people like to throw around a lot without understanding what it means, is basically an extreme form of socialism that aims to replace private property and profit-based economy with public ownership and communal control of all major means of production and resources in a society. In a fully realized communist society, there would be no class divisions or government, and everybody would get what they needed as they needed it. Communism is based on Marxism, which is the writings and thoughts of Karl Marx. If Marxism is the philosophy, communism itself is the practice and implementation of that philosophy. Again, these are not words you want to just be indiscriminately throwing around or that even remotely fit into our modern American society. Marxism believed that just as society transformed from feudalism to capitalism, it would transform again from socialism and then to communism. The only thing that really differentiates the communists from the Marxists is the method by which they expected that transformation. Communists believe it had to take place through revolutionary means. So although socialism and communism were based in almost altruistic philosophies of equality and fairness and thoughts of the common good of man, as we know from living and existing with other human beings on this planet, things that start off altruistic don't always end up that way. France never actually went communist, even after the revolution when the feudal power structure and aristocracy were overturned and all those people lost their heads. At the time, the bourgeoisie, which was the rich merchant class, ended up taking control of the means of production, which ended up tearing the country away from socialism and by proxy communism and ushering in what would become capitalism. The Russians were actually the ones to set up the first communist government. After centuries of harsh rule under the czars and emperors, the Russian monarchy, the Russian people were unhappy and started to actively protest their lack of rights in 1905. 
The Tsar at that time, Nicholas II, responded by creating a parliament, just like they had in the UK after the Magna Carta 700 years before. The Russian parliament was called the Duma. It was a lawmaking body that was designed to give some of the citizens a say in government and pacify the protesters. But like most monarchs hanging on to power, the Tsar still made most of the decisions. About a decade later, in February 1917, Russia was in a real pickle. The country was fighting Germany in World War I. It was short on food and fuel, which was pretty brutal for Russia in the winter, and the people started to protest again. They came to the capital, what was called Petrograd, but is now called St. Petersburg. The army was sent out, but instead of stopping them, the army joined in the protesting. They weren't happy either, and the Tsar knew he was in trouble. As a result of what is now called the February Revolution, the Tsar gave up power, and a committee was created from members of the Duma to appoint a new government to replace him. However, this new government was, not surprisingly, unable to solve Russia's problems because they were still at war, there was still a shortage of food and fuel. So a group of workers and soldiers rose up to challenge this new government. These challengers called themselves the Petrograd Soviet. Other Soviets, or supporters of the Petrograd Soviet, started to appear in other cities around Russia. And as the Soviets grew stronger, the Russian government grew weaker. When the Soviets were big enough, a series of different political parties were created to fight for control. And the Bolsheviks eventually came out on top. Their winning slogan was, Peace, Land, and Bread which we can all probably agree is a winning argument for a starving poor people at war. And, for historical reference, the leader of the Bolsheviks, the winning group to rule the Soviets, was a man named Vladimir Lenin. In October 1917, the Bolsheviks officially took over the Russian government and formed an entirely new form of government with Lenin as their leader. The Bolsheviks believed in communism. They thought that all common working people should share in the wealth of the country. They didn't believe that individuals should be able to own land. They took away everything that the Tsar's family had owned and started to divvy up property amongst people while improving the conditions for workers. Lenin also ended the war with Germany in 1918, but in doing so, he had to give up a lot of Russian territory, which made a lot of Russians mad, and that kicked off a civil war. The armies that fought in that civil war were called the Reds, and the Whites. The Red Army were Lenin's Bolsheviks, and they called themselves Russian Communists. The Whites were anyone who opposed them, a loosely allied group of forces that include monarchists, capitalists, and supporters of other forms of socialism. In a period known as the Red Terror, the Bolshevik secret police carried out a campaign of mass executions against supporters of the Tsarist regime and against Russia's upper class or aristocracy. The communists ended up killing the Tsar and his family, the last of the Romanov Empire that had ruled Russia for centuries, so no one could rally around them and the monarchy would officially be done. The communists ended up winning that civil war, and by 1922, a treaty between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, modern-day Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan formed a new country that they called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or the USSR. The Communist Party, led by Marxist revolutionary Lenin, would ultimately make the Soviet Union one of the biggest and most powerful nations in the world. At its peak, the USSR would occupy nearly one-sixth of the Earth's land surface and include 15 Soviet socialist republics. This new nation was called socialist, but it was built on the principles of Marxist ideology and considered communist. 
The leaders believed the government existed to control the nation's wealth and distribute it equally to all of the citizens. Unfortunately, as you can probably imagine, redistributing wealth can have very violent consequences. People who owned property were not so thrilled to have it taken away and given to others. The Soviet Union, now led by a violent ruler named Joseph Stalin, who rose to power after Lenin's death, ended up murdering millions of people in order to implement his view of a communist society. Other countries, including China, North Korea, Vietnam, and Cuba, as well as many African countries and several countries in Eastern Europe, also established communism around this time. The thing about trying to make everything equal is that it starts to really conflict with personal freedom. These communist countries found they had to start cracking down on freedom to keep control. So the freedom to practice religion, to open your own business, even to leave the country, became difficult if not impossible. As the people's freedom was cut down, the power of the government was ramped up, and government power became concentrated into the hands of fewer and fewer people, which of course is the opposite of what communism was supposed to stand for. Stalin and many other communist leaders started to be referred to as dictators, because dictators are people who rule a nation alone, often through violent means, and suppress or put down any attempts to oppose them. So although communism started with this good intention of equality, these countries basically ended up as tyrannical autocratic dictatorships, rule of one, with very few rights for the people. The word dictator was first used in ancient Rome. At the time, a dictator was a temporary leader. His great and sweeping powers only lasted during times of trouble until one Roman leader, Julius Caesar, made himself a dictator for life. Stalin in the Soviet Union, Adolf Hitler in Germany, and Benito Mussolini in Italy are some of the most notorious dictators of the 1900s. Between the three of them, they arranged for the death of millions and millions of people in order to keep their own personal power. Many dictators have come to power through a democratic election, and then gradually over time end up taking over the entire government. This is what Hitler did in Germany, and what I believe Donald Trump was attempting or is still attempting to do in America. If dictators aren't elected, they've been known to use force to overthrow the current ruler and replace them. This is called a coup. When an army commander or a group of army officials takes power, it's called a military coup, and the rule is called a military dictatorship. Once in power, dictators use the police or the army to keep control. They often strip the people of their freedoms to stop them from rising up, much like Benedict de Spinoza pointed out ancient monarchs did. If a dictator comes to power through a democracy, they will often go on to cancel or control the elections so people can no longer vote them out of office. This is how Putin controls Russia and how I believe the Republican Party is attempting to set up America. Historically, dictators were mostly concerned with military power, but Mussolini defined a new type of dictatorship, one that would end up characterizing many of the governments in the 1900s. Mussolini believed that the power of the state should control absolutely everything in society, that the strength of the country was more important than the well-being of the people, and that the power of the country's leader should be unlimited. This totality of power was known as totalitarianism, or rule by the government over every part of society. Totalitarian dictators control all parts of society. Schools, businesses, newspapers, even the arts have to follow the government's wishes. And if the dictator doesn't like you, you're dead. Like literally dead. Dead or imprisoned. Another name for this type of totalitarianism, especially with a charismatic leader at the top, 
is fascism. European writers began to introduce fascist ideas in the 1800s. After World War I, many countries were facing major economic problems and a lot of people were unhappy with the outcome of the war. Fascists came to power by promising the people power and glory. To understand the roots of fascism, we once again return to ancient Rome, where the fasces was a bundle of rods, or like super straight sticks, that were all strapped together around an axe. The thought was, each rod by itself was weak, but bound together, they were strong. The fasces was therefore a symbol of power. So in 1919, when Mussolini, who had, by the way, been a revolutionary socialist, created a paramilitary movement in Italy, he named his forces Fasci after this Roman symbol of strength. And when Mussolini went on to become Italy's leader, his style of government became known as fascism. Mussolini established the first fascist regime, but he was followed soon after by many others, including Adolf Hitler in Germany. While experts disagree about the exact meaning of the term fascism, scholars agree that all fascist governments share similar characteristics. Under fascist governments, there is a strong centralized state or national government. The fascist state seeks total control over all parts of society. Individuals must give up their private needs and rights to serve the needs of society represented by the state. The state itself is controlled by a strong leader who becomes the symbol of the country and makes all the important decisions. This leader often uses charisma or a magnetic personality to gain the support of the people. Fascists believe in capitalism, but only capitalism controlled by them. Unions, strikes, other labor actions are illegal, and although private property remains, the state ultimately controls the economy. Fascism builds their society around extreme nationalism, or identification for one's nation to the exclusion of all others, and fear of outside threats. Fascist leaders believe their will to be the will of the people, and look to national myths for guidance rather than relying on science or reason or intellectualism. Fascists are very committed to the idea that its nation's people are superior to all others, and they typically strengthen and unify a dominant group within that nation by persecuting minority groups. Does any of this sound familiar? Finally, fascists believe that great nations show their greatness by conquering and ruling weaker nations. Mussolini came first, but he inspired others to develop their own versions of fascism. When Hitler gained power in 1933, he added the idea of the Aryan master race to his fascist state. In 1939, Francisco Franco established the Spanish state with some fascist elements. Other fascist empires rose and fell in Japan, Argentina, South Africa, Greece, and Iraq, among other countries. Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini built up strong armies under this idea of returning their countries to greatness, and then used those armies to overtake other nations. Those actions resulted in World War II, and Germany and Italy fought together alongside Japan, united in their mutual desire to secure their expansionist interests around the world. When they lost that war, their fascist governments fell, and the major fascist movement of the world was dead. However, as I've said before, fascist movements have been known to take root in democracies. Today, variations of fascism live on in a number of military dictatorships around the world, Neo-fascist or new fascist groups exist in Western democracies. Fascist groups typically preach hyper-nationalism and spew hatred of racial and ethnic minorities. 
While people believed the idea of a unified nation under a fascist state died with Mussolini and Hitler, extreme racist forms of fascism empowered by the internet seem to be alive and well today, particularly visible, in my opinion, in the MAGA movement in modern-day America, but also in places like Austria, France, and Argentina. So we've just gone from the beginning of time to the end of the Second World War, and that is a lot. And now would be time for a palate cleanser. But we do not have time for that. So we're just going to take a break and thank the people who made this episode possible, and then we'll be back to blow your mind with how the rest of history got us to where we are today. And it's pretty fucking fascinating. So stick around. Politics Girl has a new sponsor, Smith AI. Smith AI is an award-winning virtual receptionist for your business. Nowadays, clients demand instant responses, but businesses are spread thin. If you're losing leads from visitors to your website or missing calls that could grow your business, you need to delegate those frontline conversations to the best virtual receptionist service, Smith AI. Smith AI handles your calls, chats, texts, all the things to unlock new business at a fraction of the cost of hiring in-house staff. Since 2015, Smith AI has combined the best receptionists across North America with AI technology for superior business communications and customer engagement. Their friendly and professional agents can screen leads using your criteria, schedule appointments on your calendar, and call back leads who complete your forms. And they can do this in Spanish or English by phone seven days a week or on your website through their 24-7 live chat service. They even answer texts and Facebook messages. They can handle all calls, after-hour calls, or just your overflow. Imagine working uninterrupted, running your business with less stress, and getting more leads from your marketing efforts. Smith AI pays for itself and then some. With new clients, their receptionist will help you win. Never miss another lead. Boost revenue, increase your focus at work, and keep your staffing costs down. It's as simple as forwarding your calls to Smith AI. Try Smith AI today or visit smith.ai to read the five-star reviews. Plans start at $240 a month, and our listeners will save $100 when you sign up using our promo code POLITICSGIRL. That's S-M-I-T-H dot A-I, and be sure to use our code POLITICSGIRL to save $100 at sign up. Don't let another day go by. Try Smith AI. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> Since we're out here talking about the world, I am so excited to announce that the Politics Girl podcast is now working with Little Passports. Little Passports is a company our family personally used and loved when our son was young. And when they approached us to sponsor the pod, I was like, yes, I love this product. Little Passports is a globally inspired, award-winning subscription service that sends your children activity kits each month. They have kits for kids that are into the world, animals, science, and in our family's case, travel. Each kit is filled with play-based activities, interactive crafts, puzzles, games, and stories to help kids have fun while they learn about the world around them. These kits are tailored to your child's age and matched to their interests. Choose a month-to-month or six-month or 12-month subscriptions, whichever one is right for you, and you can stop anytime. Our son loved receiving his little passport suitcases every month. He did all the activities and was actively engaged for more than three minutes, which, if you've ever hung out with a five- to eight-year-old boy, is near impossible. Right now, Little Passports is offering new customers 20% off when you go to littlepassports.com slash politicsgirl. That's 20% off when you go to littlepassports.com slash politicsgirl. littlepassports.com slash politicsgirl. Honestly, you won't believe how adorable it is. So my dad just came to visit our family. 
Because of the pandemic, we haven't seen him in almost three years. My mom died really suddenly in 2018 and our lives got turned upside down. And then the pandemic happened and my sweet father ended up in Canada with us in the States. But now he's here. And one of the first things I'm getting him to do is to start drinking athletic greens. I know that sounds crazy, but I'm an only child with an only child and I want to keep my dad as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And I know that if he starts drinking Athletic Greens, he's going to be absorbing all the good stuff. 75 high quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source superfoods and probiotics, and the adaptogens to help start his day off right. And I know if I can get him doing it for three weeks, he'll be in a routine. So when he goes back to Toronto, he'll be committed to feeling better. Athletic Greens supports your gut health your nervous system, your immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. It's a once a day micro habit that uses the best products and is based in the latest science. In fact, their current formula is on its 53rd iteration because they're constantly updating it as the science advances. No matter how you eat, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it all fits into your lifestyle. It has less than one gram of sugar per serving, no GMOs, no chemicals, no artificial anything. My dad's almost 80 and I'm not there to take care of him. So I want him to do things that'll help him take care of himself. And I know AG1 can help with that. So reclaim your own health or the health of a loved one by arming your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop a day in a cup of water. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is gonna give you a free year supply of immune supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash politicsgirl to take ownership over your health and get the ultimate in daily nutritional insurance. And we're back. So coming out of World War II, countries were exhausted and they decided that they would rather avoid future world wars and settle disputes peacefully if they could. This desire to find a better solution to conflict than war led to the creation of the United Nations in 1945. Most of the countries of the world joined the UN, and to this day, the UN attempts to set rules that will best serve all the countries of the world. The UN is not technically a government, as it doesn't create or enforce laws for people to follow, but some people have described it as the government of governments, if I may say it's a rather toothless one. Although the Soviet Union fought alongside the United States and the rest of the Allied powers in World War II, its politics were not aligned with that group. It was kind of a the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. But at the end of the day, they were still communist, which didn't really gel with the ever-growing powerful democratic capitalism of the West. By the end of the Second World War, the United States and the Soviet Union had begun to emerge as ideologically opposed superpowers, who each wanted to exert their influence on the post-war world. Germany itself had been split between the Allies after they lost the war, and by 1949, Germany formally split into two independent nations, West Germany, allied to the Western democracies, and East Germany, allied to the Soviet Union. At the time, the Soviet Union was going around setting up communist governments in several other Eastern European countries, and they got so many countries so fast that countries in Western Europe started to feel a bit concerned that the Soviets planned to spread communism even further. The U.S. and other Western countries shared their concern. So to protect each other against this Soviet expansion and to protect themselves from future wars like they had just fought, 12 countries got together and decided to form the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, in 1949. 
The original NATO members were the U.S., U.K., Canada, France, Italy, Portugal, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. They made a promise to help defend each other if any of them were ever attacked, something called Article 5, attack one of us, attack all of us. After that, the tension between the Soviet Union and the Western nations got increasingly and increasingly chillier. And by 1952, the Soviets closed the border between East and West Germany, although they left the crossing open in Berlin. In 1955, the Soviet Union, now run by Nikita Khrushchev, and its communist allies formed an organization similar to NATO called the Warsaw Pact. And for 40 years, these two opposing groups stood in opposition of the world order in a conflict we called the Cold War. Under Khrushchev's leadership, we had the continuing nuclear arms race, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the race for space, and the success of Sputnik, which made America feel it might be falling behind in technology. In 1961, based on the fear that East Germans would keep leaving for the siren song of the West, the communists put up a wire barrier, closing the Soviet section of Germany from the Western section of Germany almost overnight, dividing neighborhoods and families from each other. From this barricade, they would eventually build the Berlin Wall that completely separated East and West Germany by a 13-foot-tall concrete structure armed by guards told to shoot anyone trying to escape into West Germany on sight. During the 1960s and 70s, the Communist Party elite rapidly gained wealth and power where millions of the average citizens were facing starvation. There were frequent shortages of food and consumer goods, bread lines were common, and Soviet citizens often didn't have access to basic needs like clothing or shoes. The divide between the extreme wealth of the leaders and the poverty of the Soviet citizens created a backlash from younger people who refused to just blindly adopt the Communist Party ideology that their parents had. Real change started to happen for Soviets when Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 1985. A longtime Communist Party politician, he inherited a stagnant economy and a crumbling political system and decided to make a lot of changes to help the USSR become a more prosperous and productive nation. He included things like lifting the ban on books and removing the secret police. Newspapers could now criticize the government and parties other than the Communist Party could participate in elections. Under Gorbachev, the Soviet Union began to move into a more hybrid, communist, capitalist system, a lot more like China. The government would still control the direction of the economy, but it would allow the market to dictate some production and development decisions. This loosening of control over the Soviet people emboldened independent movements in the Soviet satellite states of Eastern Europe. By 1989, political changes in Eastern Europe and civil unrest in Germany put pressure on the East German government to start loosening some of its regulations on travel to West Germany. The East German spokesperson at the time said East Germans would be free to travel into West Germany starting immediately, but he failed to clarify some regulations would stay in place. The Western media then inaccurately reported that the border had opened and crowds quickly gathered at checkpoints on both sides of the wall. The border guards themselves were confused. No one had told them anything. Did they open the border or did they fire at these people? So they opened the border and thousands of people flowed through. People were crying and celebrating. The media was beaming these scenes all around the world. People started climbing on the wall and chipping away at it with hammers and pickaxes. The wall came down partly because of a bureaucratic accident, 
but it fell because of a wave of revolutions that had left the Soviet-led communist bloc very weak and ready for a new world order. The fall of the Berlin Wall was considered to be the first step towards German reunification, the last nail in the coffin of the already unstable East German government, and the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union itself. As the 1900s drew to a close and Western globalism and international business became the predominant force in the world, it became more and more difficult for communist dictators to hold on to power. The draw of the West was just too strong. The Berlin Wall fell in November 1989, and by December 1991, the Warsaw Pact, the communist NATO, ended, and the Soviet Union broke up. Gorbachev resigned, and Boris Yeltsin, a lifelong member of the Communist Party, but now a believer in both democracy and the free markets, was made the president of the newly independent Russia. The Cold War was considered officially over. And while Russia's communist experiment of the Soviet Union had failed, other countries, but particularly China, decided to keep communism going. The one significant difference between the two communist experiments is that in the late 1980s, when the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet leaders thought they needed to change not only their economic structure, but also the political system to keep up with the draw of the West. But the Chinese felt differently. The Chinese kept the communist political system of top-down, state-controlled everything, but they knew if they wanted to survive, it was their economic system that needed to change. So the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, integrated capitalistic elements into their political economy starting in the 90s, and they now run a form of state-controlled capitalism that allows it to totally control its people while being part of the free world market. This hybrid has allowed China to become the world's second largest economy and focus on what China considers to be the most important foundation of the communist or Marxist ideology, historical continuity. Back in Russia, President Yeltsin, in charge of the newly independent Russia, was breaking from his Soviet predecessors and ushering in a freer and more open society, like supporting freedom of the press and permitting public criticism and letting Western popular culture seep into the country. He also agreed to nuclear arms reductions and brought home soldiers from Eastern Europe and former Soviet republics. However, Yeltsin's time in leadership from 1991 to 1999 was also marred by economic hardship, increased corruption and crime, a violent war in the breakaway Republic of Chechnya, and Russia's diminished influence on the world stage. On the last day of 1999, after Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic, all former members of the Warsaw Pact, had joined NATO, Yeltsin gave a surprise address, announcing his resignation and asking for the Russian people's forgiveness for past mistakes. He then handed off power to Vladimir Putin, his chosen successor and the last of his prime ministers, whose first act of office was to grant Yeltsin a pardon for any illegal activities he might have committed during his administration. After beginning his career in the KGB, Putin had rose to the top ranks of Russian government, and after joining President Yeltsin's administration in 1998, he quickly became prime minister in 99 before taking over as president. He won his first election to a full term easily in 2000 and then was re-elected in 2004, but due to term limits, he was forced to leave the presidency in 2008. He did step down, but not before securing the presidential office for his protege, Dmitry Medvedev, who then turned around and appointed Putin as prime minister and changed the rules so Putin could run for president again in 2012. 
At this point, people were starting to see that his party's actions were lacking in fairness and bordering on corrupt, and people started protesting. Putin dismissed these increasing civil unrests, the largest demonstration since the fall of the Soviet Union, and claimed that the protesters were paid agents of the West. Russia was never a strong or full democracy. And although Putin was known for working well with the Duma, the longer Russia was under Putin's power, the more it moved away from democratic values to a more centralized authoritarianism. Authoritarianism is the idea of blind submission to authority, as opposed to individual freedom of thought and action, and can be either autocratic or oligarchic in nature. In government, authoritarianism means a political system that concentrates power into the hands of a leader or a small elite that is not constitutionally responsible to the body of people. Arguably, the first step Putin took to consolidate his power came in 2001, when the Russian government took over two of the most popular independent media outlets in the country. Over the next few years, Putin would work to overhaul Russia's political institutions to centralize power around himself. In 2012, when Putin won the presidency again, he amended the constitution to add an extra two years to his four-year term, so that he could remain president until 2018. In 2018, he was elected to a second extended term in a very suspect election in which basically no one could run against him and there was massive evidence of voter tampering and fraud. Putin's main rivals, as well as many journalists and private citizens who spoke out against him, were poisoned or imprisoned or in work camps. Right now, Putin can theoretically remain in power until 2024, although many believe he will seek to amend the constitution again so he can continue to rule. And while Putin may have started out seeking power for power's sake, over time he definitely found his ideology, which in my opinion leans hard towards fascism. Putin has become very committed to the idea of the glorified Soviet past. He believes that the breakup of the Soviet Union was the worst thing that ever happened in the world. And although under Yeltsin, people were generally critical of the Soviet time, under Putin, the country once again has started to see the mythology of Russia's superpower status. Even the violent and hideous Stalin years have become glorified. And I know you're listening to me thinking, is she going to talk about Putin without going into how he got so rich or the oligarchs? No, I am not. So let's do that now. Believe it or not, Putin and the oligarchs didn't get along well when he was the new leader. So as president, he took major steps to limit their political and economic power, stripping those who opposed him of their companies and influence, or trumping up false charges against them and throwing them in jail while absorbing their assets. While Yeltsin had removed government control over mass media, Putin cracked down on anyone he saw as unfriendly to him and his government. Experts like Bill Browder, American financier who's conducted a lot of business in Russia and is behind the Magnitsky laws that enable governments to impose targeted sanctions on human rights offenders, believes that Putin brought the oligarchs to heel by making a deal with them. Browder says, the deal was, you give me 50% of your wealth and I'll let you keep the other 50%. If you don't, I'll take 100% of your wealth and throw you in jail. Another scenario is that Putin's fortune comes from helping his close circle of friends and family become rich by awarding them government contracts or ownerships in businesses. In return, the theory goes, he gets kickbacks of cash or stakes in the companies. In this scenario, it would make the Russian government a form of kleptocracy or a government by those who seek personal gain at the expense of those they govern. 
A kleptocracy has corrupt leaders using political power to appropriate the wealth of the people and the land by embezzling or misappropriating government power and funding for their own benefit. We saw kleptocratic-type behavior here in America when the Trump government gave government contracts to personal friends and campaign donors, and when Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin used pandemic PPE money to hand out cash to their friends and keep a lot of money for themselves. At the end of the day, it's clear Putin has been using authoritarian power for years to acquire assets for himself and his cronies. Whether the money is being held for him or he has his billionaire friends pay his bills is almost irrelevant. He has used the power of his state to enrich himself and his friends and lock up anyone who would oppose him. He favors the Russian past of great power and unlimited control. On paper, Russia remains a federal democratic state with elections and a parliament. However, in practice, most regard it as a dictatorship built around a singular personality of Putin who controls all levers of power. Look at the current war. The Russian people don't even know what's happening because their state media is lying to them. Outside media is banned, protesters are arrested, and their leader is filling their heads with propaganda while controlling every aspect of their lives, including not being able to use the word war. Putin seeks a new world order, and he's gathering other autocrats around him who believe the same thing. He was furious at the breakup of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union. He was furious when countries that had been communist joined NATO in 1999, and then again when seven more, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia, joined in 2004. NATO makes him furious. The West makes him furious. And I guess the thought of losing Ukraine to NATO was too much for him to take. For whatever reason, he attacked Ukraine unprovoked in a war the world is currently witnessing. Though he started his presidency improving the Russian way of life, over time you can see the success of the Russian citizen has become less relevant to the success of the nation and himself. You can see it clearly right now as the Russian people suffer under extreme sanctions and Putin continues his destruction of Ukraine. He obviously thought he would take the country easily. That has not been the case. He also seemed to believe NATO would roll over. Instead, NATO is stronger than ever and Russia is alienated. What happens next is anyone's guess, but NATO has been very clear they will not engage in war with Russia, which Putin is clearly trying very hard to instigate, and will not agree to Russia's demands of keeping Ukraine out of NATO, as any independent country is free to join the defensive alliance if they want to, on merit. Ukraine is currently the stand-in for the democracies of the world as they stand against the autocrats who seek to destroy them. Whether we are battling Russia or China, there is a war of ideas here that will dictate the future of the world order, and we have to push hard for the people's voice to remain on top. So there you go. You're all caught up. Spring 2022. Right here, right now. Look around. This is where we are. We live and operate from this point forward with all that came before. Yes, I had to leave things out. There are definitely imperialist tendencies and mistakes that America made around the world. There are questions about how we handled numerous international situations. I didn't go into other civil wars, the rise of terrorism or 9-11. But now when you hear communism, socialism, Marxism, fascism, you will know what they mean, where they came from, and how those ideas fit into history. You have a broader sense of how governments evolved, monarchies, aristocracies, democracies, kleptocracies, and oligarchies. Because to know Know what's happening, you need to understand how we got here, what led us to now, and what can always happen again. Saving democracy is important. 
Because as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other forms that have been tried. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. And if you're enjoying the Politics Girl podcast and the online breakfast rants, please consider subscribing to the pod and leaving a five-star review and comment. It really does help, and it allows us to keep doing what we're doing. Thank you all so much for your support. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.